Section 8 of Movies and Hollywood Short Story Collection, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Lau. The Metamorphosed Bifocal Drama by Lloyd Kenyon Jones. A Tale of the Moving Pictures Chedsworth Hamilton Long, familiarly termed Ched for short, chewed tobacco and gloomily viewed the scattered silhouettes that loomed dismally between his nickel dreadful conning tower and a one-time white screen on a dinky stage of the Golden Hours Theatre. He was reeling off a film of the vintage of 1909 and had been audacious enough to advertise it as a recent release. The house held exactly sixty-five cents in real money at that moment, and this was the deadly average that had faced him during the dog month of August. Lisette Curlette, who said she was a sister of Sissy Curlette, but wasn't, had been singing in her light squeaky voice for the past six weeks without pay, and Jimmy Crawford played ragtime with one hand and exercised the other to beat the gaunt wolf from the door. Everybody in Petersville averred that those associated with the Golden Hours Theatre would do almost anything to get out of work, and it was beginning to look that way. It is useless, and unquestionably painful, to dwell on the misfortunes of a group of mechanical actor-folk, and particularly when luck has been breaking dead against them for so long they can't remember just when they topped the crest and sunk into the trough. On this particularly doleful day, other festivities had been planned in Petersville, terminating with a sort of alfresco dance given in the north end of town, which, fate would have it, was the opposite end so far as the theatre was concerned. Chad finally wiped his grimy face and watched the last of the audience file out of the door and yawn, and heard the same sarcastic remarks that had been passed all summer anent his show. As Long climbed down the ladder, Miss Curlette and Jimmy Crawford confronted him. "'Mr. Long,' said Lisette, with a show of heat, other than the thermal sort that permeated every nook and cranny of the stuffy little show-house, "'I ain't going to sing tonight, and besides, I want to get staked so I can go to the dance.' "'As for me,' spoke up Crawford, "'I am through. I can't pay my board any longer on your bum promises, and my landlady endorses my sentiments.' I am going to work in the paint shop tomorrow morning, so pay me up. Chad rubbed his hands and meditated. I can't pay anybody anything, he finally admitted. Then we're going to attach the joint, Lizette hissed, as she snapped her fingers under Long's nose. He blinked, winced, and rubbed the point of his tongue over his dry lips. A guy like you, said Jimmy, also advancing with the finger-snapping accompaniment. Come across, Chad, old fellow, or the justice of the peace is going to get on your trail before sundown. Let's go outside to talk, Long suggested. Sunlight doesn't cost anything, and those two lamps up there mean money. And besides, if you want to strangle this home of drama in its infancy, go ahead and do it. I'm through myself. Two men were engaged in conversation near the entrance, but the bankrupt manager did not even grace them with a glance. The principal street of Petersville was all but deserted. 
A few loiterers dragged themselves around, and passed caustic comments on the weather. Besides, Peterville was less than twelve hundred strong, and nobody ever quite calculated how those twelve hundred could make a living. It was certain that the stray nickels went to the soda fountain man, and not to canned theatrical productions. In the beating rays of the sun, the talent wilted and relented. Ched was a good fellow, everybody knew that, but what he was good for could be represented chiefly by the design that makes a doughnut what it is. Oh well, suggested Jimmy at length, pay us when you can, and we'll let it go at that. Only we're through, eh, Liz? Lizette gave her chewing gum an excursion into the atmosphere and returned snapped her jaws once or twice and nodded assent that restaurant job looks pretty good to me she said and the talent walked listlessly up the heat-bombarded thoroughfare it didn't make much difference to the poverty-stricken manager whether they attached or not he was through just as any man is when his bills payable are the quick and his bills receivable are the dead ted went back into his little theatre looked over the wreck of his heart's desire wiped his eyes, and turned up the lights to ascertain what might be necessary before closing up for good. As the rays from the kerosene globes gave a touch of life to the morgue-like surroundings, Ched's vision was attracted by something exceptionally bright on the floor up near the front row. It was small, but it was alive with an innate fire. His heart nearly stopped beating when he realised that this glittering object was a diamond, or more definitely, a diamond ring. Now, if anybody in Petersville owned a diamond ring, the matter had been kept a profound secret. As for strangers, well, it was dark inside when the folk had straggled into the theatre, and he was uncertain. Besides, Lisette had been at the door, taking the nickels. Tickets were wanton luxuries. It was a man's ring, big, bold, defiant, with a three-carat stone, set in a sort of confusion of golden serpents with ruby eyes. There was a bluish sheen to the diamond, something different from anything he remembered seeing in his dwarfed narrow life. Despite the midsummer heat, a frigid palsy seized him and riveted him to the floor in vague indecision. While he was still debating as to the value of the bauble and the sanest course to pursue, the door swung open violently and a red-faced man clad in checkered garments that savoured of the racetrack, rushed in. "'Say you!' he shouted. "'Where's that diamond ring I lost? That one with the ruby set in the serpent's eye. Hey, where is it?' As Long turned to reply, the gem caught the light and saved the theatrical manager the trouble. The stranger sighed deeply, in evident relief. "'Pretty, eh?' Ched asked, with a rather nervous and decidedly foolish laugh. "'Pretty? Why, you idiot!' That ring is worth five thousand dollars. It has a history attached to it, too. However, I have but fifty dollars with me, so take that as a reward and let me hurry. I'm just in time to make that four-fifty train. There, that's it. Thanks. The transaction was consummated in less time than Long's rather slow-acting brain could follow, and before he realized what had occurred, he was running two twenties and a ten through his fingers abstractedly. For half an hour, Ted's sole occupation was to count and recount the money, and then look under chairs to see if any other nuggets might be lurking around. It was about five-twenty when a second visitor appeared, a stately gentleman with black clothes 
and raven locks, with a modest air about him, unassuming, affable. Ched was still down near the stage when the other entered. In the semi-darkness, near the ladderway, leading to the picture machine, the stranger bowed low, remarkably low. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' the newcomer said, "'but I believe I was unfortunate enough to drop a diamond ring in here, perhaps. It's a rather large blue diamond, an heirloom in our family, by the way, and it is set in golden serpents with ruby eyes. Have you noticed it?' Long's jaw dropped, and he looked blankly at the other. "'Have I seen it?' he mumbled. "'Why, half an hour ago another fellow came in asking for the same ring. I gave it to him, and he said he was going to catch the 450 train.' "'Another man got it!' shrieked the stranger. "'You say somebody else got that ring? Why, young man, that was mine, had my initials on it, and I would have paid you a thousand dollars for its safe return.' "'A thousand dollars?' Ched's voice stuck away down in his throat. "'What sort of looking man was he?' the other inquired excitedly. With his brain reeling and staggering under the difference between fifty and one thousand, Ched described the first man as best he could, and then sank into a chair, limp and sobbing. When Long finally recovered from the dual effects of the excitement and the blow, it was already dark, and Petersville was on its way to the north end of town, where rows of saplings had been stuck up around the edges of an elevated platform. This was Peterville's way of being bohemian, and apart from a minister of the gospel and an invalid, everybody was present. The more blasé patronised the canteen, while the elite reserved certain dances for themselves, much to the envy of the less fortunate, who felt the full imprint of their plebeian condition, as they beheld the gay and easy splendour of the elect. To be added to the two recluses already named, the preacher and the invalid, was Ched Long, who was still smothered under the conspiracy of the wrongs and adventures that had crowded into the final hours of the afternoon. But if his excitement had been intense to begin with, it was tossed up to high fever pitch on his way out of his little theatre, for almost against the ladder that led to the motion picture machine, what should he do but stumble upon a black leather grip? When he had ascertained its nature, he cautiously locked the doors and returned on tiptoe to the diminutive stage. Once more the kerosene lamps started in to dispense fumes and light, and Ched gingerly opened a grip. Its contents were carefully wrapped in dark-coloured cloth, and he debated some moments recounting all the trunk mystery horrors he could recall. What he expected to find was the severed head of some murder victim, or at least a kit of burglar's tools. What he did find was a bundle of banknotes large enough to make an alligator swallow hard, and twice. There were fives, and tens, and twenties, and so many that it was past eight o'clock before he started to count them, and it was midnight when he had finished. That grip contained more than forty thousand dollars of tangible, negotiable, actual, resplendent wealth. After the first full blush of the discovery had faded, a terrible fear began to grip Ched, and he ransacked his mind to reach some reasonable conclusion as to what to do. From contemplating embarking on a mad career, with wine, song, and general dissipation intermingled, he would sink to the more conservative level of bonds and first mortgages. 
through the kaleidoscope changes of his anticipations and calculations, he finally succumbed to exhaustion and dropped into deep slumber with a great roll of banknotes for a pillow. In a back room, commanding an uninviting view of the alley on South Peoria Street in Chicago, two men sat and talked. The time was the middle of September, and both were absorbed in thoughts not precisely of the gala day variety. In their Bertillian descriptions, these gentlemen had numerous aliases attached to their real names, but as Red Gallon and Dominie Hayes they were known to the authorities. Ever since they pinched that zook up in Petersville for getting gave the phony cash, said Red, and since they got his description of us, I guess that all we get is that pesky diamond ring. Well, Red, Hayes responded, it isn't my fault. If you hadn't lost your cuss ring to begin with, we could have got out of town on the 450 going west, the same one that brought in Roland Monroe, the secret service man, instead of hiking him to the junction and catching that accommodation train. He wasn't after us, but he saw us. And the very next day, that theatrical kid began circulating our money that you planted at his furor. If he hadn't got to patronizing the local drink emporium and given the whole snap away before Monroe, we might have had time to make a clean getaway. And now for nearly four weeks, we've been living on heaven knows what, existing from day to day, melting under the roof tree of this miserable abode, when all the glad resorts are vainly calling us by our Christian names. Gallon laughed rather sardonically, slapped his red rough hands on the loud checks of his greasy trousers, and started to load his pipe. Well, I didn't have much chance to make the plant, Dominie Hayes stated finally, because the moment I got inside, there that runt was counting that bum fifty you gave him, and I dropped the grip and started in to spout about the diamond. But anyway, it's done, and I guess we are too. Why, Red? We hadn't floated eight hundred dollars of it before then, and not a cent since then, except our railway fare. While the men talked, the landlord, a squat, melancholy Italian, tapped at the door and handed them a copy of the news. The men divided the paper, as was their wont, for affording two in one day was now quite out of the question, unless the diamond should go, and that was hazardous, particularly as it was purloined property, for the return of which a good-sized reward still obtained. Gallon took the first page of the paper, and scarcely had he glanced at it than he gasped and put one hand tenderly over his heart. He pointed to the first column where the bold letters told of the arrival of Chet Long that noon, escorted by the secret service men to face the federal court on a charge of being an accessory after the fact in a now world-famous counterfeiting mystery. But this intelligence alone was not what caused a heart-throb, because beneath the scare-lines was the information that Red Gallon and Dominie Hayes had finally been located in an Italian boarding-house on the west side. Ched's initial introduction to a big city had not been under very auspicious circumstances. He had been rudely, abruptly thrust into the strong beating rays of public curiosity. The reporters who interviewed him saw more than the small-town, youthful, theatrical proprietor. They detected in him that subtle cunning that belongs to criminals born and bred. Every innocent remark was construed to have a sinister meaning, and even the staid conservative papers fanned his most trivial utterances into a flame. A Northside Woman's Club was the only redeeming influence in the reaches of the harsh city. Ched was still under age, 
and while he was awaiting trial, he was placed in the care of the kind old lady, whose life-work was to conduct a school for erring youth in the upper story of the county jail. The tiers of steel cages, with their auger-eyed, furtive occupants, grated miserably on Ched's nerves. The long climb from his own cell to the schoolroom above was one horrible gauntlet. Having a fair education, he was more an instructor than pupil, and finally he had settled down to the ways of prison life, with the ruddy glow gradually leaving his cheeks, and the pallor of confinement showing beneath his skin. Ched had been too much absorbed with the present to think or care about the future. His life had resolved itself into a dull monotony, beginning with an early breakfast, eaten to the accompaniment of clanging doors and rasping locks, extending through the routine of higher education beneath the roof of the jail, and terminating with fitful periods of suffocation and tears erroneously supposed to be sleep. During one of the visits of a tender-hearted lady to the jail, Ched was presented with a few books and a stereoscope and two dozen badly worn views. For hours at a time he would gaze enraptured through the lenses and try to picture himself in the flower-bedecked dells and on the bold, brave mountain slopes of the stereoscopic wonderland. One Sunday, as he looked intently at one of the scenes, an idea seized him. It came as a gentle thought at first, and then hurled itself on him like an avalanche. From that moment all else became subsidiary. The polished bars of steel worried him not at all. The clanging of the doors was music, and he wished and laughed until his fellow lodgers cursed him roundly for his disturbing merriment. Ched could see in the stereoscope a departure for the moving picture show as it existed, and he finally selected the aged lady who taught the school as his confidant. "'It's this way,' Ched explained, "'and I want you to follow me closely. Now, what makes a stereoscope what it is, is the taking of two photographs by means of a bifocal camera. The lenses are the same distance apart as the human eyes. The right lens takes a little more of the right side of an object, and the left lens takes a little more of the left side. These pictures are pasted side by side, and by looking through the two lenses of the stereoscope, your brain gets one solid impression. The only reason this principle hasn't been applied to motion pictures is because the two sets of film would blur on the screen. That is, they wouldn't register. But suppose we had a special machine whereby a certain feature of the object would be taken with the left lens, and a certain other feature could be taken with the right lens. Then, by focusing the two sets of film on a screen, we would have solid figures, and could represent drama with all its realistic effects. Day after day, Ched argued it out, and having studied photography to a considerable extent, he finally conceived a plan whereby the left lens of the camera could be utilized to take the color effects, and the right lens would register only the light and shadows. To do this, he would need special screens before the lenses, embracing the arts of color photography and half-tone work. Even during his trial, he was abstracted by his scheme to such an extent that the district attorney, speaking in behalf of the people of the United States, pointed his indifference as proof of his deep-dyed villainy. The evidence against him was meagre, and a jury decided that he had not been at fault to any considerable degree, and certainly not enough to be sent to Leavenworth. Their finding was therefore not guilty. If Dominie Hayes and Red Gallon had been weaklings, they would likely have given themselves up 
when a newspaper report came so near the truth. But they were tanned in the ways of wickedness, and simply sought new and safer fields. They never remained longer than forty-eight hours at a place, and were finally driven to the extremity of disposing of the ring to a friendly fence for a pittance. Unlike most crooks of the fraternity, they had no pals. They had scorned the common yeggs of the street, had held themselves above the mere highwaymen and folks of the underworld. Thus, when they were pressed to the wall, and felt the gripping need of creature comforts, they were obliged to reach a solution decidedly their own. Their original plan had been to ship an engraving and printing outfit to a certain South American city, and engage in the counterfeiting of the currency of the more volatile republics of the southern hemisphere, and they still hoped to bring events to this conclusion. Finding a permanent disguise essential, the men started in to grow beards, and by the time Ched Long had been freed from Durance Vile, the counterfeiters were as much unlike what they had been as an Arabian horse is different from a camel. Red Gallon's hair and beard were no longer ruddy, but were a deep black, and Dominie Hayes had yellow hair and beard as blonde as peroxide could make him. The transmutation had been under way for weeks, and as they did not remain in any one place long enough for the proprietors to detect the change, the alterations matured through nice graduations. Finally, along in February, while the weather was relentlessly bad, the pain of idleness and the fatigue of being hunted were both becoming manifest on the rogues. They craved excitement, anything that might prove different from the weary waiting, the horrible anticipation of the step on the stairs and the feel of the heavy hand of the law. One Saturday afternoon, as they perused the papers, Gallen permitted his eyes to wander over the classified columns. He paused abruptly in his restless process and looked intently at the page. "'Say, Dominie,' he said. "'Let's get in on this. Listen, it reads this way. "'Wanted. Two men of middle age to pose for motion pictures. "'Call at Suite 607, Temple Building. "'Sunday morning at nine. "'A fine business,' snarled Hayes, adding, "'Why, man, what do you think we're going to do? "'Advertise ourselves?' "'Why not?' Gallen inquired. "'Nobody would ever think we'd have the nerve.' And besides, since we got our clothes dyed, and me with my checks turned into a somber blue, and our hirsute decorations altered to different hues, who'd know us? Hayes felt the sting as a dare flung full in his face, and so he accepted the challenge. When the men entered the studio Sunday morning, a vague uneasiness seized them. There was something about the slim, short figure of the operator that was familiar. Just what it was, they couldn't say, but it agitated records far back in the depths of their brain convolutions that stirred up a poignant unrest. However, they posed, went through various little scenes under the direction of the young man, which included the disagreeable company of a make-believe officer, and received their money after the performance had been concluded. Upon taking their leave, the operator bowed politely, and extended an invitation to them to call occasionally, as he expected to have more work for them, but the subsequent calls were as far removed from their intentions as ideas well could be from the brains of man-hunted men. They took side streets on their return to their room and thanked a kind providence for the heavy snow that was falling 
and shielding them from the eyes of passers-by. A motion-picture theatre, located on State Street, had been spreading its advertisements to the world, that on the 15th of March there would be given the initial rendition of the bifocal drama, wherein real figures moved and breathed upon the screen. At each performance, and that meant eight times daily, the manager announced to the spellbound audience that he was part owner in a most wonderful device that cast not mere moving figures on the cloth, but solid men and women amid three-dimension surroundings, all in their natural colours. He also explained that the screen itself would be set back near the centre of the stage, and that before it an especially constructed glass screen would be placed, the latter to break up certain rays of light and make the illusion perfect. And, said he, if it proves a success as we know it will, it is going to be the new source of drama for the masses. The films are fed through the machine electrically, making the production mechanically correct, and we are arranging now for the acting of all popular plays by having phonographic records reproduce the words, the music, the very sound of the feet on a stage. In his studio, backed by ample funds and more encouragement, Ted Long laboured with the details of his device. In some ways he had wrought a revolution in the can drama. But in other respects he was not so certain. If he used a yellow-tinted glass, through which to focus the rays before they reached a white screen, the colours disappeared, and became a monotonous black and white. If he used a white glass, the finely limbed markings on the glass screen were visible in the pictures, and the pale blue glass, while producing nearly the desired effects, dimmed the reproductions considerably. On the afternoon of the 14th, before parting with the glass screen, Chet decided to treat it to a special bath which left the effect neither blue, nor white, nor yet yellow, but a tinge that was quite beyond definition. Just what the effect of this chemical bath might have been, under other conditions, is difficult to say, for the long arm of the past had reached out and gripped Chad in the very midst of his labours. Two individuals had called on him that afternoon, who brought with them unpleasant memories of the days that were, as long ago in fine, as the preceding August. They were none other than Lisette Curlette, and Jimmy Crawford, now booked on the Nickelodeon circuit as Lucy Curlette and Montague Crawford, with a musical skit built around Lisette's rather uncertain voice. "'You jailbird!' was the way Crawford greeted his old employer, while Miss Curlette used even less flattering terms. They had not come to tell Chad how glad they were, that he was not associating with mere bank residents and cashiers and other malefactors over in Leavenworth, but how sorry they were they hadn't got their money before. "'Unless you pay us,' was the indelicate way Lizette put it, "'we'll snitch to all the folks back in Petersville, and heaven knows you owe enough money back there.' Feeling that the plot was little better than blackmail, Ted settled with poor Grace, and merely grunted in response to the parting shots the near-thespians took at him as they hurried through the door. "'If it isn't real money, Chad,' said Jimmy, "'we'll get the law on you again, and with your reputation that's anything but nice.' Now, these facts have little genuine interest, but they may explain why the chemical bath 
applied to the large glass screen, was not all it should be, and wide results at State Street Theatre were not exactly as had been planned. The bill, which had endured for one solid hour, in which the audience always joined in the choruses, was scheduled to show the new wonder pictures as the grand climax to occupy ten whole minutes of time. Now it chanced that the currents of passers-by, trending both north and south in the busy thoroughfare, carried two vastly different classes of craft. One was what might be aptly termed a revenue-cutter in the form of Inspector Monroe of the Secret Service, and the other type was represented by two derelicts, moved by the madness of seclusion to regale themselves with a little innocent sport. Besides, having only recently made a few dollars in a purely legitimate occupation, they did not begrudge the two times necessary to pass them beyond the portals into the dreamland of the drama of the great unwashed. Despite their previous notions, the young lady with the dapper but slightly faded red uniform led them far down in front, and a moment later she had escorted the inspector to a seat near the door. This was all in the realms of chance. Fate loads the dice now and then, and it had them prepared to turn a pair of deuces for two individuals, and five aces for another, which in a slang fashion hits close to the heart of the truth. The programme had progressed in its stuffy, weary way, with pictures, songs, questionable and rather bizarre jests, right bang up to the thrilling climax of the solid motion pictures. The manager edged his way to the little brass-encircled prominence, whereon the soloists were forced to stand to escape bumping into the screen, and he told, in thrilling tones, what was to be expected. There was a purring and a sputtering above the heads of the denizens of the lower floor. The great glass screen was moved into place, and the white cloth screen was lowered some four feet back of it. Everybody in the audience gasped when the focus perfected, for instead of looking at the ordinary motion pictures they saw before them, what appeared to be real, living men, whose every movement was as nearly as perfect as existence itself. The colours were not quite true to life, but they differed only by a shade. On the solid appearance of the furniture, the men, of even the smoke from their cigars, was so real that one might easily have detected the ticking of a watch. So deep was the silence. The scene disclosed two men, one with black hair and the other with a decided blonde, engaged in earnest conversation. Down near the front row, two rogues nudged each other and waited. The plot of the story had to do with the betrayal of one man by the other, and the guilty pair who viewed it recalled with vivid detail the fear they sensed when an imitation patrolman had rushed in upon them and seized them by the collars. This, of course, was the termination of the betrayal, but somehow the crooks did not relish the approach of that portion of the reflected drama. Yet everything might have run smoothly enough, and nobody would have been the wiser, had that chemical bath not possessed a flaw. Under the penetrating rays of the light, the tint on the glass screen was undergoing a change, the pigment was decomposing, and the shade changed from the uncertain tints to a very light cast of crimson. Immediately the colours before the audience also underwent an alteration, and the black of the shorter man's hair and beard began to show with all the ruddy glow of an autumnal sunset, while the blonde head and beard of the more stately individual changed to raven hues. Nor was that all. The conventional blue on the screen 
had penetrated the disguises, and while the audience wildly applauded, fancying the difference to be part of the plot, two men arose hurriedly in one of the front rows and started up the aisle. In the back part of the brain of the government sleuth, there was stirred up a revolution of memory. Somehow it all dovetailed perfectly with what he had been in touch with in the very recent past. Arising to his feet to get a better view, and endeavouring to associate the voice from the gallery with something he had known, he espied two men hurrying along the aisle. Up in his tower, Chad had also noted the men, and wild with excitement, he had deserted the machine, leaving the electrically propelled films to their merry fate. He reached the main floor, just as the officer had made the arrest, and the audience had now started in a mad scramble to learn the cause of trouble. The manager, finding himself deserted, started for the bifocal machine, and was just writing himself in the gallery when the films reached their terminus. In his haste, he tripped and fell, striking the device squarely and tipping it over into the pit below. It struck with a resounding foot, and there was a tinkling echo that told of the shattered lenses and a ruined mechanism. Twenty minutes passed before Ched returned. His face was flushed, and he was breathing hard from excitement. "'It's the counterfeiters!' Ched roared. "'The fellows who brought me into my trouble! Read the papers in the morning if you don't believe me. I'm going to be a witness!' "'The papers? The papers?' the manager asked. And then the situation dawned on him. "'Well, Chad,' he said, "'you've put this part of our show under blink temporarily, but while you're building another one, I guess we'll take the advantage of all the advertising that goes on with the trial of the counterfeiters. So get out of here, and I'll see you in the morning. I've got to get another show started without you.' Out on the street, Chad paused and scratched his head and thought. Then, to his ears, was wafted a familiar clicking, the nervous chewing of gum, "'Say, Chad,' came Lizette Curlette's voice, as she and Jamie Crawford edged up to him. "'Jim and me's got can, and you're a grand success. Won't you stake us to a ticket back home? On the square, Chad, we'll boost. The job in the restaurant's waiting for me, and Jimmy can get back in the paint shop any time. Come on, Chad, won't you?' End of section 8